0: Before we start tonight, there was a bunch of people that came to me with a question about last Wednesday. And I ought to address that. It's the first item on our list. Um, Will the lost enter the millennial reign of Christ? We talked last week about the saved. What happens if you come to Christ during the tribulation? And the Antichrist doesn't kill you. You escape and you're alive and you haven't died and you weren't raptured that means you're still in the flesh right and if you're still in the flesh and you weren't haven't died and you weren't raptured you're in the flesh jesus comes stands on the mount of olives he kills the antichrist we start the millennial kingdom those people are alive we believe those are the ones who are having children who are having children during the thousand-year reign of christ the question became will there be any of the lost Go into the millennium. I want you to think. When Jesus comes, what, what is the gap between the tribulation and the millennium? What changes from the tribulation to the millennium? Jesus stands on the earth. What does it say about when he comes? He comes with the sword in his mouth. To do what? To strike down the nations. To make war. Against who? Well, it says he kills the Antichrist with his glorious splendor as his rival. He also makes war against the nations. So my assumption, based upon Revelation, is that when he comes to kill the Antichrist to make war against the nations, the lost will be destroyed. They will enter the place of the dead. They will wait in the place of the dead until the second resurrection. So, to answer the question, will the lost enter the millennial reign of Christ? Those who are on the earth, alive in human bodies, not resurrected bodies, will they enter the millennial? I don't think so. I think they'll die when Jesus returns. I think they will be casualties of the war because, read, he comes on a white horse, a sword is out of his mouth, he comes to make war against the nations against the people who are joined the Antichrist in the rebellion against God. So that was a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of questions came in, so I thought I'd deal with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the revealing that has told us what the future holds. I pray tonight, as I pray each week, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures. By knowing the word, we can know the Son. By knowing the Son, we can know the Father. By knowing the Father, we can have eternal life. We pray thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. I've spent the last 10 weeks teaching this series about Revelation so that we could know the future plan of God. Do you know this? You have inside information. You know what many people on earth don't know. You know the future. You cannot talk about the Revelation without also revealing hail it's impossible when you read the book of revelation one thing will become clear the revelation is the revealing the uncovering the unveiling what is revelation reveal it reveals heaven it reveals end time events but it reveals also the place of god's judgment hail That brings up a powerful, compelling question. If you read Revelation, one thing becomes clear. Does everybody go to heaven? That's what we talked about this past Sunday. That's the question that that covers the earth. Does everybody go to heaven? If I've listened to the world answer the question, if you go to funeral homes and listen to people talk about the dead, Everybody wants to say, I want to say yes, but it's not true. Several years ago, I read a book by Francis Chan. The title of the book was Erasing Hail. I'm going to refer to that several times tonight in that session. I want to give credit to Francis Chan. Is Hail real? Would a loving God send someone to hell to suffer eternally? Isn't it more likely that unbelievers would just cease to exist? Now, I'm going to use some logic here, okay, because it actually opens up the door for the truth. Isn't it more reasonable that unbelievers would just cease to exist? Wouldn't that be bad enough? Wouldn't it be bad enough to tell you that one day, if you reject Christ, you will lose consciousness and fade into nothingness. Isn't that bad enough? Now, that's bad. That's bad enough. But you wouldn't be hurting. You wouldn't be in pain. You wouldn't be in anguish. You wouldn't have memories of past, present, future. You wouldn't be experiencing self, right? Maybe people in hell will suffer for a while. Here's another idea. Maybe they'll suffer for a while, depending upon how terrible they were on the earth. Adolf Hitler, he's going to have a whole lot of suffering, but this one guy who really was a pretty good guy, he just never believed Jesus was real, he'll just get a little bit of suffering. Is that it? And then, and then after a little bit of suffering, that one guy, he just ceases to exist, and Adolf Hitler, oh well, he'll, he'll, he'll suffer in some kind of a body for 10,000 years, and then, poof, he ceases to exist. Maybe people in hell, after suffering, will get a chance to repent. Uh-oh. Maybe. This is, I'm going somewhere with this. Some people like the idea that, that after Adolf Hitler spends 10,000 years in hell, he'll finally get it. Maybe after 10,000 years, maybe it'll take him 10,000 years to figure out the Jews were not a good place to attack. And he'll turn to God and repent of his sins and receive forgiveness and end up transferred to heaven. Is that the idea of purgatory? Now, I'm not going to bash the Catholic Church. That's never my plan. I'll, I'll let God deal with the details. But, but there is much of an idea internationally of the idea of purgatory. That, that hell ends up being a place To where you can change your mind. That given the right conditions, you can change your mind. Or if you go to purgatory, somebody on this side, still alive, can do something to get you out of jail. That maybe they can pray you out of jail, or pay you out of jail, or make a gift to the church and get you out of jail. You see, there's a whole lot of ideas. That's what I'm trying to display. There's a whole lot of ideas about this place called hell. Or maybe it's really just as bad as you've been taught. Forever existence. And I use the word existence. And I use that word carefully. Maybe it's as bad as you've been taught. It is a forever existence. You can't call it life. Because life is from God. And if God's not there, you've been exempted from life but you have existence instead of life and you've got it forever a forever conscious existence of suffering and anguish in darkness and the absence of God maybe it's really that bad no second chances no do-overs no chance that somebody can pray you out or pay you out or you eventually change your mind. No punishment that leads to non-existence. No punishment that leads to unconscious, fade to black nothingness. I could make this a very short class tonight, but you know me, I can't do it. We could just stop here and say, why test any of the above? Why don't you just come to Jesus and you won't have to deal with any of that stuff? Instead, I want to look at the Word of God. I want to learn what He says about this place called hell. David Jeremiah writes this in his study. He analyzed scriptures and said, Jesus spoke three words about hell for every one word He spoke about heaven. I want you to let that sink in a while. Three words for hell for every one word He talked about heaven. A three-to-one ratio. And yet, you know what, I meet people who say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in hell. Would that make any logical sense to you? I toured the Ark Encounter. I had a picture of it last week, and I I missed my last page. I got so excited. And when I went to the Ark Encounter, there was a picture hanging on the wall. And here's what it said. There's a serpent wrapped around the, the picture with his serpent head sticking out and these words are coming from the serpent if I can convince you that the flood was not real then I can convince you that heaven and the hell are not real why why would why would somebody say that because what was the flood uh, don't say water but what was the flood it's God's judgment he consigned the earth to life or death done End. you you lived or you died god came and he decreed a judgment he declared it he gave a warning to the righteous he gave listen he gave a revelation to the righteous he comes to noah and reveals in advance what's going to happen in the future And Noah believed him and prepared for that which was coming. Now, if you read the New Testament, it says Noah was a preacher of righteousness during the time he was under a boat construction project. But he didn't get anybody to come over. They laughed at him, I suppose. If you could erase from human history the flood... what would happen? You would deny that God judges permanently the earth. We already have a test example. God judged the earth. It was total. It was complete. Eight people survived. So if you could convince people that the flood wasn't real or it's a cartoon and a joke of a bunch of silly-minded Christians, you could pretty much then take that basis and say this whole judgment of heaven and the hail, it's as goofy as the flood. And let's, let's, okay, let's bring that to right now. Do you think our American culture embraces the idea that the world had a worldwide flood? No, you'll be laughed out of every university, every intellectual school or place of teaching. They deny the flood love wins. That's the idea that everybody wants to hear, love wins. A few years back, a very popular Christian preacher named Rob Bale, and I say very popular because I read a lot of his stuff. When I first came to Nineveh uh, 18 years ago, I I read quite a few of his books. I even had, he had some um, uh, DVDs that I actually used in some small group teaching. Uh, They were a little edgy for me, but he would sometimes make pretty good points, and I I used them. And he wrote a book called Love Wins in which he comes to the conclusion, a very strange conclusion about hell. By the way, this isn't a new idea, this idea that Rob Bale came out with in that book, and the reason it made such an impact is Rob Bale had moved into the pretty visible... He was was one of these... um, fancy preachers he had a lot of notoriety he was on tv he was one of the emerging church people everybody was saying wow isn't he cool his church is full of people but then when you examine his teaching what he really was teaching was universalism it was just disguised as christianity and then recently and i've shared this a couple times um Since Billy Graham died, XM Radio put a lot of his sermons on there for quite a bit of time, and I just had a chance. I'm in the car a lot, listen to a lot of sermons, and and Billy Graham talked over and over and over and over about this universalism. And you know, I, I just never really put together that that was such a big deal in Billy Graham's messages about universalism. Well, years later, Rob Bale writes this book, Love Wins, and here's what he writes. At the heart of this perspective is the belief that given enough time in hell, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart. While while you're in hell, listen, listen. that's while you're in hell. The love of God will melt every hard heart and even the most depraved sinners, Adolf Hitler, will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. You know, the problem with Rob Bale's idea is it was Rob Bale's idea. It was not God. And I'm going to tell you, it cost Rob Bale dearly because I applaud much of the church leadership around the country that probably like me, had read his books and watched his videos, suddenly said, "Uh uh-uh, Rob Bale, Uh uh-uh, uh-uh, that's heresy. You're out. You're out. And, buddy, he took a hard fall. He is no longer a very popular preacher. Nowhere in the Bible does it mention anyone having a second chance after death, to turn to Jesus. I want everybody to understand what I just said. Nowhere in the Bible does it mention anybody ever having a second chance after their death, after they face God, to have a second chance, to get a do-over. It's not in there. Let's look at the teachings of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. What are we looking for? We're wanting to know what God says about heaven and hell. Luke 13. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on toward Jerusalem. So somebody asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? What a great question, if you could handle the answer. Will only a few be saved? He, Jesus, replied, Work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. For many will try to enter, but they will fail. Many, listen, will fail. Fail what? To enter the narrow door. Now he's answering the question. Will only a few be saved? Verse 25. When the master of the house has locked the door... It will be too late. So you got it. What do I learn? You better get in before the door closes, right? When the door is locked, when the master locks the door, it's too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading. Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. Then you will say, but we ate with you, and we taught in our, and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I don't know who you are. I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be what? <clears throat> What's outside the door? What's outside the door? There's going to be weeping outside the door. There's going to be gnashing of teeth outside the door. For you, while you're outside the door... While I read this next part, I want you to go back to the rich man in Lazarus, there's a great gulf, and the rich man is shouting to Abraham across the chasm. Now let me read this. I will as soon as I find it. <laughs> Verse 28: "There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for you. for you will see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob." and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. It's almost like this picture, and and I don't want to overemphasize, it's almost like this picture that for a while, for a little while, you can see the other side. Remember in rich man and Lazarus, he could see, the rich man could see Lazarus, he could see Abraham, but there's a great chasm and nobody can cross back and forth. Jesus' analogy is there's a door and the door is shut and when the door gets shut, you're on the outside weeping and gnashing your teeth and, and it's too late. You've been thrown outside, one more time, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for you. I keep putting, I'm missing the comma. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, comma, for you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets, where are they? They're in the kingdom of God. But you have been thrown out. And the people will come from all over the world. This is a worldwide event, right? They're coming from all over the world, from east and west and north and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Some who are greatest now will be the least important then. Here's the problem with Rob Bell's idea. Jesus says clearly something in verse 25. I'm, let's, let's focus on one verse, verse 25. When the master of the house has locked the door, it's too late. You remember in, the, in Revelation, I didn't put it in the text, but in Revelation it says, he holds the key of David and what he closes, no one can open and what he opens, no one can close. Remember, that's, the, that's what he says to one of the seven churches. I can't remember which church it is. He holds the key of David, and what he closes, no one can open, and what he opens, no one can close. And when the master of the house, anybody want to guess who he is? Jesus is telling the story. When the master's house gets up and he locks the door, it'll be too late. You will stand outside. You're going to be knocking. You're going to be pleading. Of course you're going to be knocking. Of course you're going to be pleading. Open the door, but it's not going to open. Now here's where the issue of our own hearts and minds, everybody stay with me. Here's where the issue of our own hearts and minds comes into play, and the real reason that I added session 11 tonight, well there's two reasons. One is, when I wrote the original series, there were only 11 and we had 12 weeks, so I had to put this in here to make another week. Well, there's the real reason. What I did not know, and I want you all to know, what I did not know and what I did not plan, and quite, and quite frankly until a couple of weeks ago, I didn't even notice that I had done it, that this past Sunday sermon, which was pretty heavily talked about hail, and tonight's session, which is the revealing of hail, were going to end up in the same week. And I did not plan that. I would not have planned that. That's a little bit too much hail in one week okay it's a little bit too much hail but that's how it worked out because here's where we're going how would you feel if that person on the other side of the door was your grandmother when the master of the house gets up and closes the door it's too late now we can all sit here tonight and say well that's justice we can all sit here tonight and say that's righteousness and that's holiness and that's God. He's the righteous holy judge, right? Now, that's your grandmother on the other side of the door. Now it's different. She loved you. She fed you. She gave you spending money when your parents said no. And nobody showed you more love than your grandmother. But your grandmother, in this scenario, never received Christ. Your granny is on the other side of that door. And she's lost. Forever. Now, how do you feel about God and that locked door? Kind of changes things, doesn't it? Would you like for God to give Grandma another chance? Would you? Of course you would, and so would I. The problem is, I'm not God, and neither are you. You see, I look at that and think, man, Grandma ought to get one more shot at this. But see, Grandma, you see, I I didn't sacrifice my son for Grandma. God did. I didn't so my perspective and his perspective is going to be totally different. I didn't kill my only son so that grandma would have an opportunity to receive the forgiveness of sins, but God did. I think he's going to look at this a little different than I do. Don't you? You and I must come to grips with this one issue before we can move on tonight. Go down to Isaiah 55 fundamental verse in the scripture. God says to Isaiah, he says to us, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So when you and I look at grandma on the other side of the door and we think she ought to get a second chance, God doesn't think like we think. will never think like we think how could a finite being and that is us corrupted by sin how can we contemplate the absolute holiness and absolute righteousness and love of God How, how can I I'm this little bitty creature down on this earth and he is this all powerful creator of the universe and how can I assume that he thinks like me or I can think like him and, and God, you ought to open that door for Grandma. Much less tell him he might be wrong on this whole hell thing. Do you know what would be good counsel right now on this subject? Fear God. I have noticed in recent years, even here at Nineveh, that some people don't like it when I say those words. I had a couple people confront me after a sermon where I talked about that. Fear God. I'm giving you some counsel tonight. Fear God. In Luke 12, verse 4, Jesus says, Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. But I'll tell you whom you should fear. I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you that'd be bad enough, to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. Given the choice to listen to Rob Bale or the false religion of universalism or listen to Jesus on this issue of hell, I'm going to listen to Jesus. Let me summarize what Jesus says about hell. Now, right now, I'm going to get deep into some Scripture. They're all on your sheets. And I want you to look at what... Do not let the world tell you about hell. Do not let Hollywood tell you about hell. Do not let the world tell you about who's going to go, who's not going to go. And if you get another chance after you get in there, do not listen to anybody else. Jesus knows. And it's not complicated. What I'm about to read to you, everybody in here can understand it. Let's start with Matthew 25 31. Jesus himself says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, when is that? He's coming in his glory. This is when he's coming to reign. Then he will set upon his glorious throne. Is that in Jerusalem? He will set upon his glorious throne and all the nations. Who are they? The nations. They will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. Some of the nations had followed the Antichrist and some of the nations had rejected the Antichrist and refused to bow to the idol and accepted Christ. Let me say it again. He will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence. And he will separate the people as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Now go down to verse 41. And then the king will turn to those on his left. Now who are these? These are the goats that he has cut out from the herd of sheep. And he will say to the goats, to the lost, away with you, why? You're cursed. Don't read over the word. Away from me, you cursed ones. What's the curse? This is not new. This is old. What's the curse? It happened in the garden. What's the curse? Death. 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 Away, from, from, away with you, you cursed ones, into where? where? Where are you going? You're cursed. The curse is death. Where are you going? Into the eternal fire. Prepared for who? The devil and his demons. Now what's the curse? Death. Judgment belongs to God. It belongs to God. He's going to gather the people, the nations. He's going to come to the earth. He's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to gather the nations and separate the sheep from the goats. The goats are going to eternal fire, the place of the dead. Why? It's the curse. Where did the curse come from? Sin. So what is the difference between a sheep and a goat? The sheep sinned, but they were forgiven. So their sin is removed. You're a sheep. The goats sinned, but they never got their sins removed. So they're still a goat. They're still in sin. And sin equals death. It's not complicated you got to get your sins forgiven. Last week we talked about what? If you die in your sins, it's over. Right? It's over. Judgment belongs to God. Look at this one. Verse Matthew 5, 21. Jesus again says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to what? If you murder, the, the law said don't do it. What happens if you do? If you do it, you're going to be judged. You're subject to a judgment. But Jesus says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you're what? He's elevating the law. If you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot. oh, If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court and if you curse someone you are in danger of what these are jesus's words you're in danger of the fires of hell he's bringing this out remember there's a three to one ratio about jesus talking about hell over heaven three to one ratio three times more judgment belongs to god Here's the thing, we're not up for the task. The whole idea of calling someone an idiot, the reference of that, don't get hung up on the word idiot. The reference of that is if you think you have the qualifications to determine someone's eternal outcome. You're not qualified for that. I'm not qualified for that. Don't, that belongs to God. Judgment belongs to God. I assure you, He knows the idiots. He knows them. You can fake me out, but no one's going to fake him out. Number two, hell is described in imagery of fire and darkness. It almost sounds impossible, doesn't it? Because every time I'm around fire, there's light. Fire is light. God seems to have the ability to make fire without light. Hail has the imagery of fire without any light. Where people in the fire, people in the darkness, lament. That's weeping. They are suffering. They're in anguish. Don't let the world tell you. Here's what he says. Matthew 13. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven notice what he's talking about. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the worker slept, his enemy, well, his enemy, you know who he is, Satan. His enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. Then the enemy slipped, slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said sir the field where you planted that good seed is now full of weeds where did they come from an enemy has done this the farmer exclaimed should we pull out the weeds they asked no right now pause pause on the earth we got weeds and we got wheat, we got sheep, and we got goats. These people are saying, "Lord, should we pull out the weeds?" His answer: "No. Why? Why?" Verse twenty-nine: "No. You'll uproot the wheat. If you do, let both grow together. Right now, that's we're, we're, this is happening right now." The weeds and the wheat are growing together. Let them both grow together until the harvest. Anybody want to guess when the harvest is? Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, sort out the weeds, separate the sheep and the goats. I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie the weeds in bundles and burn them and put the wheat in the barn. Now, if you read that and you're still not getting it, you're thinking, oh no, why don't he just talk plain? Why has he got to do wheat and weeds? Why don't he just say it? Huh? Just say it. Then let's jump down. Jump down to verse 36. All right, here we go. He's going to explain it. Then leaving the crowds outside. Okay, he's told the crowd about wheat and, weed and weeds. Now he's brought the, his closer people inside. And Jesus went into the house and his disciples said, please explain the story. And leave out the weeds and the wheat. Would you just tell us the story? Jesus replied, here he goes. The son of man is the farmer. Jesus is the farmer. Who plants the good seed. The field is the world. And the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. Who are they? They are believers. The weeds are the people who belong. Don't don't, don't jump over the word. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. Everybody in this room, everybody on earth belongs to some power. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. Are we talking about weeds and wheat? Uh Uh-uh. We're talking about people. 41. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will remove from His kingdom. When will it be His kingdom? When He stands here. Anybody seeing Revelation unfolding? Because I am. He will remove from His kingdom He has just killed the Antichrist upon his arrival. The Antichrist had reigned on the earth for seven years. He will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and who does evil. So if you're wondering, do the lost who are in physical bodies make it into the millennium? That verse says no. Right? He will remove Everything from his kingdom that causes sin and all who do evil, and the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom, and anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Is that complicated? See, I don't think it is. I don't think it's complicated. Now, if you just stayed up in the weeds and the wheat part, maybe, okay, it's a little harder. But that part right there, that's not complicated, is it? That's not complicated. Matthew 18. Here we go again. What sorrow awaits, Jesus says this, what sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable. But what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So let's answer the question. What is the sorrow that awaits the person who does the tempting? So let me say something. Let me pause for a moment because I want you to get this. You see, I have people all the time, all the time, who, who I've confronted about a sin, say, it's my life, I'll do what I want to. It doesn't affect anybody else. And I say, you're wrong. Your sin affects other people. Your life choices affect other people. Your life choices may be actually causing somebody else to sin. Your life choices. This is where I take a strong position on drinking. Listen, some of y'all aren't going to like it. Get over it. Here's the strong position. If I were to maybe drink, I do not drink. I choose not to drink. I don't want to drink. I'm not thirsty. I'm totally satisfied. All right? If I was thirsty, maybe I'd drink. I'm not thirsty. I have no desire to drink alcohol. I don't need anything to numb me. I kind of like being cognizant. At 61, I need all the cognizant I can get. Okay? I don't drink. And you might say, well, you know what? There's freedom for me in Christ to drink. To that, I probably would say, yeah, there is. But when you drink, you might be the one who causes that other person to become a drunkard. And you will be held accountable. See, this whole idea that it's just me, that's the illusion It's not just you. If it's just you, I'm going to tell you what, your heart is still self-centered. You still haven't grasped the reality of what it is to be in the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Each member cares about the other members. You might drink your whole life and never have a problem with it. But somebody might watch you drink and become a drunkard because they can't handle it. It does matter. Now, let me read it again. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. You know what? Maybe you'd come to me, because listen, I've had this conversation. Say, well, drinking's not a sin. Being a drunkard is a sin. You drank, and maybe it wasn't a sin because you could control it. But that guy who saw you drinking, he became a drunkard. You took him into drunkenness. Because he saw you as a believer and said, well, it's okay, because he did it. Let me ask you a question. You doubt what I'm saying? Y'all go down to Applebee's this weekend, and I'm up to the bar chugging down beers. What are you going to think? Now, why is it any different that you would look at me different than anybody else in this room? There's no difference. If some of y'all see me chugging down beers in there, hit me in the head with a hammer. It's not going to happen. What sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. So if your hand or foot causes you to sin. I'm dealing with a family right now in this church that is devastated by alcoholism. This is not some abstract issue with me. I am trying to drag a guy out of the ditch this very day. This is not a sideline in the church. This is real. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Are you thirsty? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand and one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. What is the context of that that cut it off? What is the context that you have tempted somebody else to sin? Your life. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it, throw it away. It's better to end eternal, enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into the fires of hell. Number three, hell Is it a place of annihilation or is it a never-ending punishment? How long will hell last? There is some debate on this one. I touched on it last week. I'll do it again tonight. Jesus makes this very clear for Satan and his demons. This is not questionable, okay? Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire. Who is the eternal fire originally prepared for? It's not people. The eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his demons. Not people. Well, why are people going there? Because the people belong to Satan. And who you belong to is who you'll follow in eternity belong to jesus you're going to follow jesus into eternity you belong to satan you'll follow him into eternity hell was created for satan and the demons but those who belong to him are going to get what he gets but it was created for him here's what i want you to get out of that it's called eternal fire for satan and the demons so for satan and the demons they're not going to get any rest. They're not, they're, it's never going to end. A billion, 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 billion years from now, they're still going to be an eternal fire. Is the eternal nature and condition of hell only for Satan and the demons? Here's the question. I'm going to read a scripture that specifically refers to people. That one I just read refers to Satan and the demons. What about people? Is it eternal in its nature? Matthew 25. They will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refused to help the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me and they will go, they, we're talking about people here, right? We're not talking about Satan and his demons. We're talking about people. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. He is equating eternal punishment on the same level as eternal life, which means they last forever. Punishment. Now, somebody, because I've had somebody do this, somebody would look at me and say eternal punishment doesn't necessarily mean that they're forever conscious, that the separation of God himself from God himself would be punishment enough, to which I would think, say, good try. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. Now I'm going to tell you, and I mentioned this before, there are some that believe that this eternal punishment is only for Satan and the demons not for mankind those who believe that tend to believe that punishment and time listen carefully will be dependent upon how you lived your life and then death or unconscious non-existence will eventually come let let me break that down some people believe, and they can take Scripture and show you, Dr. David Reagan's one of these guys. In fact, his last issue of Lamplighter, he devotes an entire section to this, and it's not his opinion. He uses Scripture. So he has some position on it. In that, he believes, and he uses Scripture to document that if a person is lost, God assigns them to the lake of burning sulfur. There is no getting out. You, you don't get out. You don't get another chance to get to heaven. All that's crazy. But the question is, as, as heaven moves into eternity, as, as, as believers move into eternity, think about eternity. That's forever. It's millions and millions of years. It's, it never stops. Is it possible that God's judgment for the lost is dependent upon their length of consciousness in the lake of fire. He believes, David Reagan believes, it's based upon his judgment, that Adolf Hitler, you get 10,000 years. This, this other person, you get 1,000 years. I don't know. I don't know. He makes a good argument. Um, I'll just say, you know what? I don't know. I'm going to keep it simple it looks like it's eternal to me and either way either way either way either way listen if that brings you any solace today you're the dumbest person i have ever met you know uh, and i don't that's the kindest way i can put it if that fi- if you find some comfort in the idea that it's only going to be a thousand years really What it ought to do, either way, the whole concept of lake and burning sulfur and a door that shuts that can't get open and weeping and gnashing of teeth and darkness, that ought to make you fear and tremble and fall on your face before God. That's what it ought to do. Not, not go, looks like it's only a thousand years. So, what shall we do? Here's where I'm going tonight Hail has been revealed. Nobody has to guess. The revelation has revealed heaven. The revelation has revealed hell. The revelation has revealed all the events that lead up to both. They're in there. It's in there. It's all in there. So what should we do? What should we do? Because ultimately, that's what we got to get, right? Acts 17. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now He commands everyone to repent of their sins and turn to Him. For He has set a day for judging the world. He set one in time of Noah, and guess what? He's got another one. It's on His calendar. He set a day for judging the world with justice by the man He has appointed. And He proved to everyone who this is by raising Him from the dead. His name's Jesus. He's going to judge the world. He's got it on the calendar. Nobody's going to say, I didn't know. Yeah, you did. Repent or perish, and I don't want to perish. The revelation has revealed hell. Listen, here's where I want to go. The revelation, the book of Revelation has revealed heaven. It has revealed hell. The whole name of the book is revelation. It is the revealing, the unveiling, the unfolding The pulling back so you can see it. Heaven's been revealed. hell has been revealed. All the events leading up to both into the judgment of God, they're all revealed. So what are you going to do? John 3, 16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. What does it mean will not perish? What's it mean? It means you won't go to hell. But you'll get eternal life. There's the two choices in that verse. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. That's not why he came. He came to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged. Why? For not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. The church began with a very clear announcement. In Acts 2, verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to show that you have received the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. You go, Peter, for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, what? Save yourself from this crooked generation. Save yourself from what? The curse. Death. I close tonight with one of the scariest passages in the Bible about hell. I tremble when I read these verses. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On Judgment Day, many, many. Why does he got to put that word in there? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. I'm going to insert, these are church people. These are church people. These are church people. Non-church people will never say those sentences. They will never say, Lord, Lord. They will never say they did this, 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 this. It's all religious statements about religious things. These are church people. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Don't try to rationalize it. Just tremble and believe Him. God is almighty and sovereign. He is in charge of all things at all times. If that is true, and I believe it is, then some may rationalize the question. I'm going to turn a corner right now. Why doesn't God save everyone? Why would He send anyone to hell if He is indeed all-powerful, He is all-loving, He is all-sovereign, then why would anybody go to hell? Human trying to understand the will of God. So, here we go. Romans Nine. It answers that question. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? If God made me and I'm a sinner, am I not just doing what God made me to do? Right? What's the big argument in the homosexual movement right now? What? It's how God made me. I'm only doing what God made me to do, right? Right? You know, the problem with that logic is that we're all sinners. So what happens, what happens if you get this inclination that God made you to be a murderer? Should you murder? Oh, no, no, no. God made me to be a thief. Every time I go by that thing in the store, I'd like to put it in my pocket. God made me a thief. So, okay, the only way you can ever experience your full personhood is to become a thief. What? The the problem with that is it's the idea that whatever I feel like I ought to personally do, I need to be able to do because that's how God made me. The problem with that logic is there is a truth inside of it. We are all cursed because we all have sinned. Everybody in this room? You're a sinner. If left unchanged, your heart will lead you to sin. Can I look at God? Look at that verse again. Why does God blame people for not responding to the gospel? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? Here comes the argument. No, don't say that. Don't say that. Don't do it who are you a mere human being to argue with god should the thing that was created say to the one who created it why have you made me like this when a potter makes a jar out of clay doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw the in the garbage into in the same way Even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who were made, listen, you want to have something to prove that he is over us? Who were made for destruction. Can God, here's the question, can God make a person in advance knowing that person will end up in hell? And you might say, well, that's not fair. Don't do it. Don't you do it. Don't say it. Don't say it. Are you God? He does this. What? Some people, listen, some people are destined for destruction. They're destined for destruction. God knew before the foundation of the earth. Where does free will come into this? I don't know. I'll ask him when I get there some people's destiny is destruction it's here it's written can he not in verse 22 read it again in the same way even though God has the right to show his anger and his power he's very patient with those on whom his anger falls who were made for destruction he does this what to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy whom he has prepared in advance in advance he prepared some for glory in advance he prepared some for destruction and we are among those he selected both from the Jews and the gentiles what for the glory do you know what his illustration is a potter and clay what's clay it is dust which is dirt and water what are we what we'll makes up our body? We're, we're, have you noticed that the ingredients of our body are all ingredients of the earth? Evolutionists say that's because we came from the earth. No, we're dust and water formed by God. He breathed life into. Do you think He can do with us? That's clay, right? Dust and water is clay. You can form clay. It's dust and water put together, and you can form it, right? Do you think he has the right to form the dust and the clay that he makes however he wants? I am dust, a piece of clay that God has breathed life into. This piece of dust mixed with water has been invited by his creator, the potter, to become a child of God and enter his eternal kingdom. And I have said, Yes, Lord. Have you? Are you sure? Heaven is real. Hell is real. You and I are real. Judgment is real and judgment is coming. Are you ready? Hell has been revealed. Hebrews 3, 7. This is what the Holy Spirit says. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I, God, was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. And here's his message to the church. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day. What? You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says, today when you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. I'm going to ask you a question, church. What, what if you're not faithful to the end? Can a person lose their salvation? Big theological questions. Can you surrender the salvation which they have once received by faith? Can you receive? Christ by faith, and then later, unreceived Christ? Can you believe and then stop believing? If you were saved by faith, what if you lost your faith? Would you be unsaved? Hebrews 3.14, he says this, For if we are faithful to the end, why does he say to the end? Trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed. We will share in all that belongs to Christ. What if you don't? Why would you not repent when sin enters your life? Let me ask some summary questions and I'll close. Every one of these scriptures tonight clearly define repentance of our sins, right? So I ask you a question. Why is it so hard then to repent? Why would a person not be baptized? There are many that have not been baptized. I know a whole bunch of people that come to church here who have not been baptized. Why not? It's the same question as repentance. If the Bible says you need to repent, why wouldn't you repent? If the Bible says you need to be baptized, why wouldn't you be baptized? Why wouldn't you do it? Why would anyone take less than serious the most serious issue in the universe, heaven and hell? Let me repeat verse 14 and 15. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says. Today, when you hear his voice, don't do what they did. Don't do it. Don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. What does it mean, harden your heart? God spoke, you heard it, but you won't do it. God spoke, you heard it, but you won't do it. Why not? I don't know. I've labeled the following scripture, the last scripture tonight. One of the most frightening scriptures in the Bible. Every time I read it, it gets me. Hebrews 4.1. God's promise of entering His rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them, just as it was to Israel. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Even though this rest has been ready since he made the world, we know it is ready because of the place in the scripture where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God is, so God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter it because why? Because they disobeyed God. So God set another time. Did you hear that? Somebody say hallelujah. You know what the church age is? God set another time. You're in it. Right now. So God set another time for entering his rest. And that time is today. Doesn't matter what day you read this, it's still true. Today. God announced this through David much later in the Word. In the words already quoted today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The word revelation, which is the translation of a Greek word, apocalypsis or apocalypse. When we think of the word apocalypse, we think of something awful or tragic, a cataclysmic end of the world event or something like that. However, the word simply means the uncovering, the unveiling. Tonight, I'm going to tell you this, hail has been revealed. Heaven has been revealed. All the events leading up to both have been revealed. No one's going to say, I didn't know. It's been revealed. The primary purpose of the book of Revelation isn't just to paint a picture of end times, even though it does that. You know what the primary purpose of Revelation is? To reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. And once you see the glory, you will follow him. Father, tonight, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation. Thank you for revealing hell. Thank you for revealing heaven. Thank you for revealing the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for revealing the way to find life, forgiveness of sins. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.